Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. This is the Radio Gaga Podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and in today's episode, we are diving into another progressive rock heavyweight, the album Brain Salad Surgery by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. First, let's acknowledge our main sources for this episode. My first was the book Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, The Show That Never Ends by Forrester, Hansen, and Askew. I also referenced The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prague Rock by David Weigel, Greg Lake's autobiography, Lucky Man, Prague Archives, Joe Basso's interview with Keith Emerson from Music Radar in 2014, and the Prague Notes podcast. And I should acknowledge the original source of my appreciation for this band, which is my dad, David Harris. He's my guest on today's episode, and it was so fun talking to him about this album. Kind of like Steely Dan and Asia, Brain Salad Surgery is one of those albums I always knew my dad loved, since I was little. But as an adult, actually getting the details of why makes it mean so much more. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were progressive rock's first supergroup. They were the first to bring prog rock to the masses and are one of the major players in the rise of large-scale arena rock shows in the 70s. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or as they were commonly referred to, ELP, was a three-man orchestra filled with virtuosic talent and imagination that would guide the entire genre of progressive rock. From the perspective of today's era, looking at a band that is centered around synthesizer solos and 30-minute science fiction epics about dystopian futures and half-tank, half-armadillo creatures, looking at that today, it might justifiably seem that these were not the guys dominating the scene in the 70s. It surely doesn't seem like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer would have had as wide appeal as they did. But today, we're going to talk about their influence on not only progressive rock, but rock music in general, and the presentation of rock. We'll talk about sellout crowds at massive stage shows, the introduction of new electronic sounds that no one had ever heard recorded before, and the legacy of these three gentlemen that is still carried on through today. My dad has been a fan, to quote ELP, from the beginning. I asked him what he thought it was that made so many people crazy for these guys, and so quickly. Progressive rock, you think, as being kind of narrow, and and they did have some airplay for some of their music, but it was they were never pop top forty back then. Back then, you were I was still listening to like for instance WLS in Chicago, a huge pop station. They would have never played Emerson like Palmer. That was relegated to the album stations, the FM stations that were coming along. But I think, I think that when the word gets around that their live shows are quite the performance and quite worth going to. I think people will go to a good live show 
even if they don't aren't really into the music. And I think if think if that apply for me even now, if if I got a chance to go to a show, it's well, they're I kind of like their music, but I guess their shows are just fantastic. Then that's worth it. People want to be entertained. Mm -hmm. So that may have been what was drawing it. ELP had a huge hand in building the idea of elaborate global stadium tours. The band was one of the first in the world to travel with their own stage, and their antics at performances involved 360-degree spinning instruments, five sets of their own stage curtains, dragons, and inevitably, accidents. At a 1974 show, Keith Emerson's ribbon controller short-circuited, exploding and blowing off his thumbnail. He spent the rest of the show dipping his hand in a bucket of water between songs to wash off all the blood. Actually, most of my favorite live ELP moments to watch on YouTube involve Keith Emerson. There's one show where he's playing his Hammond organ, and as he keeps playing, walks around it and plays it from the other side backward like it's nothing. There's also a super famous clip from a 1971 show where he is just abusing his Hammond organ. He goes to lay down on the stage and pulls the whole organ on top of his body and keeps playing it as he looks like he's being crushed by the instrument. He then proceeds to stab the instrument. Stab. Yeah, there he goes. Oh, and now he's hopped up on top of it and is riding it like a surfboard. Lawrence Hammond is rolling in his grave. Then there was the famous California Jam performance in 1973, where Emerson comes out, sits at this massive grand piano, then he begins playing Chopin's revolutionary etude as he and the piano both rise high up into the air. This is a feat in itself. Those are massively heavy, and how he is so strapped in that he doesn't move is nuts. But then, Emerson and the piano begin revolving, tumbling forward at breakneck pace in 360-degree turns, high up in the air. There he goes, playing this entire thing perfectly while being swung around like he's in a human centrifuge training for NASA. It was lights. It was lasers, because back in the oh, late seventies, lasers were all that. <laughs> now, now they're kind of blasé. But well, I I still like them, but but they're not as big a deal anymore. I think I think I remember Carl Palmer's drums rotating. I think he would I think he would strap himself in with a seatbelt, and I think part of his drum set would actually rotate, and so he'd be playing like you mentioned with Keith Keith Emerson. He would rotate. Um, uh, and keep playing. Uh, so I don't remember a lot of, of uh, pyrotechnics or fireworks and stuff like that. I just think it was lighting, mm -hmm. lighting and, and, and performance type thing. Uh, a little sidebar. Um, 
well, the way I was reading it, uh, uh, that at some point in time when they were touring early on, uh, Greg Lake would, when he was singing into the microphone, if he touched the microphone, he would get shocked and, and it wasn't grounded properly. So he ended up getting, having Persian rugs purchased and put on the stage so he could walk on the, the rugs and that would insulate him against touching wires that might have yeah. loose ground wires so he wouldn't get shocked. And, and you talk about budget, uh, it got to the point where they were buying $10,000 rugs for him just to do his performance on. So I, they were so, at their heyday, they were so flush with cash. They, they, it, it, I forget how many people they would uh, have for their roadies and their transportation, but it would be semi after semi after semi. And, and it was just a, I think that's the very thing that got all their great attention probably drove them into financial hardship at some point in time too. You can't, can't maintain that kind of show all the time and forever at $8 a ticket. At its height, the band was traveling with 25 roadies, 32 sound cabinets, and 40 tons of equipment. But while the band lived comfortably outside of work, most of their money was reinvested, going right back into the live shows. In fact, at one point, they all took a pay cut in order to spend more on their stage show. In 1973, indulgence was the provenance of progressive rock. The musical style, the volume, the stage presence, broad rockers enjoyed a life of excess. But usually it didn't have as much to do with drugs and women as it did with living lavishly. Primarily, ELP lived to entertain and give the audience their money's worth. book, David Weigel points out that humans have spent tens of thousands of years learning to perk up when they hear surprising sounds. As he says, you needed to be able to tell a saber-toothed tiger from a gust of wind. This is why a genre like progressive rock keeps us on edge. As I noted in my episode on King Crimson, progressive rock as a genre is basically impossible to categorize. But prog can, generally speaking, be broken down into three major modes that happened one right after the other when prog was at its height. The first, Weigel says, is retrospection. Basically, progressive rock began by replacing the American influences of pop rock with those of more English or European influences. Think early, early Genesis. The second mode was futurism, where the use of new sounds and non-rock influences began replacing standard musical modes. The third is experimentation, polytonality, insane, untraceable time signatures, music that copied no one and could be copied by no one. If you haven't started rolling your eyes yet, go ahead. I understand. Progressive rock as a musical genre has a reputation of being pretentious. This is a moniker that was slapped onto prog bands by music critics almost at the very beginning, and since then, it just stuck. But really, this type of music can tend to come off kind of pompous. It can sometimes sound overwrought, needlessly complicated, or too clever by half. And as we know, the stage presentations are frequently big, over-the-top productions. So what's good versus what should you roll your eyes at? I'm only 31, so I'm kind of new to the genre in comparison to how much there is out there. But the way I approach progressive rock as a listener myself is first understanding what I actually appreciate and enjoy versus what I don't. 
Admittedly, this can be difficult because the music itself is extremely complex. Just like any musical genre, there are great prog bands and there are bad ones. For me, the great ones are the ones who use time, space, and unique instrumentation to paint a full picture for their listener. They might wear capes and wizard hats on stage, or they might wear a t-shirt and jeans. I honestly don't care. But no matter what, they are first and foremost storytellers. They bring classical inspiration into a modern setting and are constantly evolving. Early Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, including brain salad surgery, earlier King Crimson, Genesis, Yes, Rush, Nert, Triumvirate, Pink Floyd, and newer guys like the Mars Volta and Tool. Those are some of my favorites. Like any genre, some of them have bad albums and bad phases, but they're generally exceptionally good progressive rock. The bad prog rock bands are the ones who just play a 20-minute suite because they love listening to themselves play. This can be hard to suss out sometimes. I look at some progressive rock bands, even some prog metal bands, and it's kind of like watching someone super confidently say an incorrect fact and call it truth. It's like, okay, I know 2 plus 2 does not equal 5, but you seem so confident in saying that it does that I'm almost giving it a second thought. It's kind of a dumb comparison, probably, but I think you know what I'm saying. Progressive music is technically really difficult to play. So anytime I hear it, automatically I'm like, whoa, that is a great musician. That's a great band. But as I found in the few decades or so of being a prog fan, it's not always good just because it sounds complicated. Prog is like a cardio workout for my critical eye. I just do my best to learn and understand what sounds good to my own ear. Brain salad surgery, most of it anyway, sounds good to my ear, but it might not to yours. I asked my dad about his take on this and where Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's brain salad surgery falls on that scale for him. Even now, sometimes you hear people playing their instrument because I think they want to hear themselves play yes. as opposed to Agreed. playing for the music or playing for the for the fan or for their band. So, and I, so I, this is a little... At times, some of the songs might be a little in that scale, but I think that's probably why it was a popular album and then and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer was pop popular at that time because it wasn't that pretentious. It's still fairly within reach, I feel like, for a generalized audience. I think if you really like Prague or if you kind of like Prague, like this is an album that you will really love. Yes, yes. And even if you don't care for progressive rock that much or you don't think you do you might you might still pick some of these songs out and listen to them and then appreciate them for what they sound like um you know and and and, and enjoy the song they aren't making noises just to make noises they're they're actually the music actually makes sense um now i think you would argue later on as as the group as the group went on into the later 70s when they put out Works 1 and Works 2, and then they started getting really pretentious, I think. In fact, the Works 1 was, uh, you may touch on this on some of your backstory, but, but uh, Works 1 was three sides of three separate uh, performers, and then the one side of the, it was a double album. Then the fourth side was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. In other words, each side of the, one of the records on Works 1 was themed for Keith Emerson, Greg Lake, or Carl Palmer. That was what they wanted to do. And the others, the other two played on them 
where they wanted them to. Like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, kind of, <laughs> kind of like that. And it wasn't, it wasn't that they're, I don't want you playing my music, or I want. It was, it was, the group had 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 done a lot, and now they wanted to, you know, especially Keith Emerson. He would take a a, a tired old uh, part of a of a classical piece and then add something to it. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's just like if I wanted to listen to Bach, I'd listen to Bach. Let's meet the members of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and look at how they got together to form this supergroup. and ELP, Keith Emerson. He is one of my absolute favorite musicians of all time and completely revolutionized the resurgence of classical music and rock. Growing up in West Sussex, Emerson began taking piano lessons at the age of eight. He could read music at a very early age, and by the time he turned 15, he had saved up money, at least the down payment, on a Hammond organ. His father, Noel, who was an amateur player himself, helped pay the difference to support his son. Emerson continued his studies as a teenager, and as he got older, began taking it around London and gigging with different bands. By the mid-60s, he started messing around with the mechanics of his organ, which produced new, sometimes unearthly sounds. He loved that he could manipulate this instrument that, by now, a lot of people were playing, but only he knew how to make new sounds from it. Emerson founded the progressive rock band The Nice in England in 1967 and saw commercial success for the first time. The Nice became well-known for Emerson's showmanship and abuse of the Hammond organ. He'd stand on it, rock it back and forth, nearly pushing it over, and switch the reverb on and off quickly, which was typically a no-no. While the Hammond was Keith's signature instrument for a long time, he would eventually be most well-known for his relationship to the synthesizer. Emerson's first and primary inspiration starting out on synthesizer was Walter Carlos's album Switched on Bach, an album that recreated famous Johann Sebastian Bach pieces entirely on Moog synthesizers. The album is credited for advancing the Moog synthesizer into the realm of popular music. 
Walter Carlos, now Wendy, also did soundtracks to The Shining, A Clockwork Orange, and a number of other famous pieces. When Emerson heard Carlos's album, he was super intrigued and went to test out a studio version of the synth at former Manfred Mann member Mike Vickers' house. Emerson fell in love immediately. But he found that the synthesizer wasn't really an instrument that was super portable. The thing was like a huge telephone switchboard, not exactly meant for touring on the road. By now, artists like the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel had been using Moogs in the studio for a little while, but no one had actually toured with one before. Emerson wanted to. So he wrote to Bob Moog, the founder of Moog Music, asking for the specs of a synthesizer he could take with him on tour with the Nice. Moog sent him a new version he had just produced that had a preset box, meaning it would be a little more portable than the original. It took two years for Emerson to master the Moog, but as he learned, he stayed in touch with Bob, who kept working to improve and update his invention. Emerson became the first musician ever to tour with the synthesizer. With input from Emerson and other musicians who had been using Moog synthesizers, Bob Moog developed and debuted a new model in 1970 that would be far more portable for touring musicians, the Mini Moog. Emerson would go on to be one of the first and most revolutionary instrumentalists on the Mini Moog, which is still sold today. There's one more thing to note about the synthesizer that will come into play on today's album. Moog's synthesizer, when Emerson began playing the instrument, was a monophonic synthesizer. This meant that of all the notes on the synth, you could play any of them that you wanted, but you only got one at a time. If you tried to play two, note priority would take over and it wouldn't work. What's important about brain salad surgery is that it was the very first time the public would hear a polyphonic synthesizer on a record, a synth that could play multiple notes at once. The Moog Apollo was something Bob Moog had been working on for some time, and by the time Emerson and his bandmates were ready to record brain salad surgery, the prototype was ready. So today's album is the debut of the polyphonic synthesizer in popular music, and it marks one of the most important advancements in electronic music technology. Moving on to the L in ELP, Greg Lake. You may know him as the first bassist and singer for the progressive rock band King Crimson. King Crimson supported In the Court of the Crimson King on an international tour in 1969, and on some of the shows, The Nice opened up for them. Lake and Keith Emerson formed a friendship on that tour, eventually talking about the possibility of forming a new group together. In April 1970, Lake left King Crimson and joined up with Emerson to start their new group, but they would need a drummer. Carl Palmer began taking drum lessons as a young boy in London. He formed multiple bands as a kid, ultimately ending up doing session work and then joining the crazy world of Arthur Brown. He and Vincent Crane left that band in the summer of 1969 to form Atomic Rooster. Lake 
Emerson called up Carl Palmer, who by this time was already deeply bored with Atomic Rooster. Palmer was excited for the challenge and joined Emerson and Lake shortly thereafter. The music media were immediately all over it. The three of these guys hadn't even played in public together, and already NME was announcing on the front page that they'd gotten together. Greg Lake pitched a few band name ideas that he thought exemplified the individual energies of the three of them coming together, including Triton and Seahorse. Obviously, those both sucked, so after some debate, they finally settled on Emerson's favorite and the most rock and roll law firm name ever, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. The band's debut album, self-titled, released in 1970. It was an instant success. Emerson's solo at the end of Lucky Man was, I think, the first instance of a synthesizer being used as a soloing instrument in place of a guitar on a record. It proved guitarists no longer had the edge of being the coolest instrument in the band. Fellow piano players, unite. Next up came Tarkus in 1971, a concept album that was written in only six days. It's a science fiction story about the birth and life of the war machine Tarkus, who is famously shown on the cover as a cross between an armadillo and a military tank. Tarkus fights and loses to the Manticore, a character that would later inspire the name of Emerson Lake and Palmer's own recording company, Manticore Records. months after Tarkus, ELP released a live album, Pictures at an Exhibition, in which they played the entirety of Modest Mussorgsky's solo piano masterpiece of the same name. Mussorgsky published the piece in 1874, and his work had been a large part of ELP's live shows since they began playing together.
Next up, in 1972, came Trilogy, which featured From the Beginning, Fugue, and a fun version of Aaron Copland's Hoedown. enjoyable album, Trilogy was recorded with so many overdubs on a 24-track recording that it would be difficult for the band to recreate the songs live in concert, just the three of them. It was really the first album they'd created without a stage performance in mind, very much a studio creation. So for ELP's next album, Brain Salad Surgery, they decided to do something a little more straightforward. They moved away again from the 24-track recording and did everything with the plan of being able to play the entire album live just the three of them. Though it sounds like they may have had a simpler recording process, make no mistake. To practice as though they were playing live, the band bought an old theater, tore out all the chairs, and retrofitted the space as a rehearsal studio. They also housed Manticore records in the space, and bands like Led Zeppelin would later borrow the space for rehearsals. 1973 was a hugely busy year for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Right after they launched Manticore Records at the beginning of the year, but before they started recording Brain Salad Surgery that summer, the band sandwiched in the spring 1973 Get Me a Ladder Tour of Europe. The tour was extremely successful, though it didn't really help the band's declining relationship with music media. Tales of money and excess on tour only served to push critics further into their belief that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were the most marvelously conceited assholes on the planet. There were obviously some publications, including NME, the New Musical Express, that quite liked the band, but the trio had a fair amount of consistent detractors from the beginning. Most of progressive rock had this experience. Let's just say there wasn't exactly an overflow of Rolling Stone darlings coming from that genre. Brain Salad Surgery recording sessions began in June 1973 in London, and the album would be released by that November. Let's get into the tracks on side one of Brain Salad Surgery, starting with Jerusalem. As I mentioned, this was the public's very first time hearing the Moog Apollo, the polyphonic synthesizer that would later become what we know now as the Polymoog. Jerusalem was written by poet William Blake and was first put to music in the early 1900s by Hubert Perry. It's a traditional, patriotic English song that Keith Emerson remembered listening to growing up. Jerusalem discusses a religious idea about how Jesus may have spent some of his life on earth. But ELP's version became kind of controversial when they tried to make it a single. Here's my dad. The theory is that between the time that when, like, whatever it was, Luke 2, 50, 252 or whatever, and, 
and Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God, something like that, in favor with God and man. In other words, they missed like 20 years of Jesus' growth. It's just not covered in the Bible. It's just not covered. And the theory is that he actually went to England. And the song Jerusalem is about that. When they released it, the BBC refused to play it. Uh, it took a long time for them to play it because they felt this was such it was such a hymn and a protected hymn of the culture of England, the Church of England, that they felt that Emerson, Lake and Palmer were mocking it or making fun of it or being disrespectful to it. So they didn't even, even though it was released as a, as a single, they didn't even get any airplay on it for a, for a very long time. Emerson says that he was surprised when music media thought ELP had become born-again Christians because of this song. It wasn't the intention behind it. Literally, the band just loved the song and how majestic it sounded. None of them were religious. Emerson says he had tried an arrangement of Jerusalem with the Nice, but it came together so much better with Greg and Carl. Jerusalem wasn't the easiest song for Carl to lay down the drum part on. Keith and Greg had already laid parts down, Keith on his Mogapalo polyphonic synthesizer, and Greg on bass and vocals. And there wasn't a click track for Carl to listen to while he recorded, which was a challenge. But I think the drums sound great and complement this very synthesizer-forward song. My dad brought along the 45 of Jerusalem to show me, and the disc is kind of special. Uh, so I, I want to show you this here. This is kind of an old... Uh housekeeping thing we talked about too on 45s if you remember we talked about the 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 size of the hole well this is actually a this is actually um a english that's an english record and um as, for those of you obviously who haven't seen this before we, we had actually talked about uh uh the size of the 45 hole as opposed to the 33 spindle this 45 still has the 33. Wow. It's meant to be played on 33, but it has a knockout. You can take out that little center section. Oh. Because England never really went towards the big hole 45 until later. So they did this so that it could be played on American jukeboxes. Although I can't imagine what... what <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine playing Jerusalem at Arnold's, you know. At, uh, wow. At, but this that's, is awesome. Yeah, that's an original, actually a truly... For real original. Yes, it Manticore is. Manticore Records. Yes, Manticore. It also can't be ignored that there is a fair bit of irony in beginning brain salad surgery with a spiritual hymn and a triumphant tone. Because from here, we'll arrive later at the bleak visualization of a completely dehumanized world. We begin that descent into madness with the next song, Takata, another great example of ELP's love of adapting and rearranging classical music for modern times. Takata was written by Keith Emerson, adapted from the fourth movement of Argentinian composer Alberto Ginastera's remarkable first piano concerto. 
Emerson fell in love with Ginastera's piece after hearing it played by the LA Philharmonic in 1969. Here's a sampling of Ginastera's original piece, recorded in 1968 by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. You'll hear guest pianist Joao Carlos Martins, who would be the same pianist Keith Emerson would see play this song in LA the following year. Ginastera's first piano concerto fourth movement is fast, percussive, and aggressive, and incorporates some characteristics of Argentinian dance. After the LA Philharmonic show in 1969, Keith Emerson was so obsessed with the piece that he met with Joao Carlos after the show to tell him how much he enjoyed his interpretation. The pianist had an extra copy of the sheet music and happily gave it to Emerson. From there, Emerson learned it and began rearranging it on his free time. He didn't intend to ever play the song with the nice or anyone for that matter. He just enjoyed fiddling around with it and creating an arrangement of his own. But when he got to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Keith pulled this back out again, knowing Palmer and Lake were the guys who could actually help turn his interpretation into something special. He recorded his version with the guys, which took two weeks to complete. But their record label was wary of the adaptation and said ELP would need to get permission from the original publishers, Boozy and Hawks. Upon hearing Takata, the publisher said they didn't believe Maestro Ginastera would approve it. But Keith Emerson wasn't about to stop there. He got Alberto Ginastera's phone number from the publisher and spoke to Ginastera's wife on the phone. By the end of the phone call, Emerson had been invited out to Geneva for dinner at Mr. and Mrs. Ginastera's home. So Keith and ELP manager Stuart Young flew out immediately with a tape of Takata in hand. After meeting and enjoying a meal, Ginastera and Emerson listened to the tape together. When it was over, the composer seemed to have a terrified look on his face. But then he said, quote, you captured the essence of my music. Ginastera absolutely loved Emerson's take on his piece and gave him and his band full permission to use it. If you look at the lyric sheet of Brain Salad Surgery, all it says under Takata is this quote from Alberto Ginastera, Keith Emerson has beautifully caught the mood of my piece. By the time ELP recorded Takata, Carl Palmer had designed his own custom-built stainless steel drum kit. But he was also ready to dabble in electronic percussion, mostly out of a desire to be the first one to do it. it the sound is so, it's such a unique, the steel drums have a unique 
cool sound about him. And these were just, uh, you know, he plays them very fast too. You usually don't hear it played it like quite as intensely as, as he does. Well, and there's some electronic percussion in this song too, where Carl Palmer's playing like drum pads. And okay. it's like one of the first, yeah. maybe the first recorded appearance of an electronic, almost like an electronic drum kit, essentially, is what he had. Which electronic drum kits now may be the most overused. Right. <laughs> recording. No, those are on their way out again, I, I think. I hope but... so. <laughs> well, there's times when you can do things with the electronic percussion that are that are good and fun, but yeah, but all the time, you know, as, as your form of, your form of keeping a beat in percussion, it's not that good. Remember the Sorcerer's Apprentice from Fantasia? The one where Mickey is in the like wizard hat? He's carrying the water buckets or no, the the buckets of water are chasing him or something. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um this sounds a lot like that. I think that was Paul Ducas um The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and that this the main theme of this sounds kind of like that. The first few times I heard Takata, I always thought the middle section was a little much. It's kind of like when you sit a five-year-old kid in front of a keyboard that has a bunch of different modes that bark like a dog and that kind of thing. But as I've listened more over the years, it's grown on me. It's still hard to follow, but I enjoy listening to it as its own weird little soundscape, rather than trying to find answers inside of it. Next up is Still You Turn Me On, which is a love song written by Greg Lake. But I don't think it's about a woman. I think it might be addressing Emerson, Lake, and Palmer fans. He sounds bogged down by the price of fame, yet knowing people are listening and enjoying his music, that's what keeps him going. On Still, Emerson plays a beautiful accordion and harpsichord with a little bit of synthesizer. This song is so pretty. The line, every day a little sadder, a little madder, someone get me a ladder, had inspired the name of their Get Me a Ladder tour, but Greg Lake has never explained what the line means. Still, 
Carl Palmer didn't play percussion on the song. There was no percussion. And because of that, and I don't know what, there must be some contractual thing. I, they did not allow the, uh, that song to be released as an Emerson, Lincoln Palmer song in the United States because Palmer wasn't playing on it. Huh. Now, I can't imagine if that is some rule or some contractual thing, but there's lots of groups that get songs released that a certain player may not, or a certain person may not be playing on it, you know. Uh, Father Christmas, that couldn't be released as Emerson, Lincoln Palmer because, because I, I don't think he, uh, Greg Lake was the only member that played on that. I think okay. he had other people playing. Okay. Uh, so even though that was released on an Emerson, Lincoln Palmer album, which I think was Works 2, it couldn't be released as an Emerson. So when, when you hear it listed now, when you see it, you know, when they're playing the Christmas music, uh, now it's going to be listed, it technically should be listed as Greg Lake. There's one on Tarkus, but each album leading up to Brain Salad Surgery and including Brain Salad Surgery, this song, there's always that Greg Lake song. There's like a one that he's right. written because like right. Lucky Man was on their self-titled. Right. Then you had um, The Sage from Pictures okay. at an Exhibition. Right. You had From the Beginning, which is on Trilogy. Which, by the way, is a very awesome it's song. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, all those songs are absolutely gorgeous, but... I think another one of the reasons that they didn't release this as a single was probably due to the fact that they didn't want people to think that this was the Emerson Lincoln Palmer sound necessarily. Because if you're only if you're only hearing a song like Lucky Man, like listen to Lucky Man for the first time and that's your first introduction to Emerson Lincoln Palmer and then you listen to Carnival 9 like what like your mind is just like wait is this the same band because it's such a different style and it's so pretty and it's i mean it's the guys it's emerson lake and palmer it's just so different right that i think they you know i think even greg lake said like it was it was tough for them to put something like this out as a single knowing that it's not representative of their sound as a whole right which is probably what led to Works 1 and Works 2, which were probably. completely <laughs> se separate, <laughs> separate sides yeah. of records. Yeah. Greg Lake's ballads, though not quite indicative of the ELP sound, were important for the commercial appeal of their records. And today, the ballads dominate Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's streaming numbers. Lucky Man, From the Beginning, Father Christmas, and Still You Turn Me On are all in the top 10 on Spotify. Next up is Benny the Bouncer, which kinda comes out of nowhere and is a fun little romp before we get into the serious stuff. Emerson's piano playing is incredible on this song. He's so fun to listen to. He generated the honky-tonk sound by taking a string from the piano and bending it out of tune. You'll also hear a harpsichord and Carl Palmer on the brushes. Benny was the bouncer at the party He's slashing granny's face up, giving off a chance. He's so you back to pieces, all foolish and half a quid. He thought he was the meanest until he met with Savage Sid. 
city was a greaser with some nasty boots. He pulled a pint of Guinness over Benny's boots. Benny looked at Sydney, Sydney's never back in his eye. I really love this song. Well, <laughs> It, it it's so goofy I, I, my notes here it, it says it it's it's fun piece to listen to and it is because it's real it's recorded weirdly too i i, I forget what they did record it weirdly on purpose for whatever reason uh but i i was confused like i said I, written down here i was confused the first five times i heard it <laughs> I thought, what is this what is this um and it's and it wasn't grandiose it did not take itself seriously it was just I, just something that they must have come up with and just thrown it in there, you know, uh, just to maybe, maybe, I don't know what their true motivations were other than it was fun to write, I'm sure, and fun to perform. Well, and Peter Sinfield wrote, helped write this, which I think probably brought a lot of that personality into it, too. Right. But I'm not sure I've ever heard King Crimson song like that. That's I mean, true. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, I don't know. Maybe they just got a wild hair one day. And actually... I don't know if you ever ended up listening to The Mollusk, the album by Ween that I did a podcast on. Parts of it. Okay, so there are a lot of similarities, as I've realized, listening to that album and then listening again to this album. There are a lot of similarities. Um, that album is super proggy. It was, like, written way, way later than this one, but there is a, like, an, a drunken Irish bar song on that album, too. That's just like, I mean, it's it's got to be inspired by yeah. this. And and I didn't ever connect the dots before um, because I never really listened to Ween before I did that episode when I was talking to my friend Paul. But I have since seen so many more connections between not just that and brain salad surgery, but Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in general and even like Genesis and some other like progressive groups. The thing about uh, Gene Ween is he was able to go from singing the most gorgeous piece of music you've ever heard and you that his voice, like you just can't believe how pretty his voice is. And then he goes into singing something like he like distorts his face and sings like really scary and weird. And I think Greg Lake, can do that too because greg is singing this song just as he was singing still you turn me on which is like a really pretty vocal part We're almost to the end of side one of Brain Salad Surgery. From here, we enter into the coup de grace of progressive rock, Carnival 9. It's a 29-minute suite that spans the end of side one and the entirety of side two. It's intimidating, but hang in there with me. We'll break it down by track. There are three impressions, kind of like movements, broken up into four tracks. We have the first impression, part one and part two, the second impression, and the third impression. One major reason the first impression had to be broken up into part one and part two is that all of Carnival was too long to fit on side B of the vinyl. So first impression part one is on side A, while the rest of the suite takes up all of the other side. As we'll see, it actually works pretty well, even though you have to flip the record in the middle of the suite. 
If you're listening on streaming or CD, even better. Carnival, spelled K-A-R-N space E-V-I-L, was a title chosen by Peter Sinfield as a play on the word carnival. And you'll hear that inspiration as we go along, both in the music and the lyrics. But it's not a fun carnival. It's a scary one. Greg Lake said Carnival represents a dystopian place and time ruled by a computer. I had never realized this before, but David Weigel in his book posits that Karn is actually the computer itself, which makes the name Carnival 9 make sense, alongside other famous sentient robots and computers named with numbers, like Johnny 5, or maybe more appropriately, HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Let's get started with Carnival 9, First Impression, Part 1. Part of the first impression tells of the loss of human value through so-called progress. What's interesting is that Peter Sinfield, who helped write the lyrics to all of Carnival, before he was in King Crimson, he worked for IBM in the 60s. So he knew before a lot of other people the potential that computers had, and now even more so today, to outsmart and eventually outlive humankind. We start out part one with an altruistic narrator, believed to be human, He's looking around, seeing what's become of his race. People are struggling to survive, they're suffering, and he wants to help. He wants to protect what's left of humanity, be there for his kind, and fight for them. And honestly, he sounds confident enough to be the guy to do it. But a little over halfway through this part, we realize he's failing. And the song is no longer from his perspective. All of a sudden, we're introduced to a new narrator, supposedly a computer, maybe one of Karn's minions. But this new narrator comes in with all this excitement, announcing, we have an amazing show for you today. There are thrills, shocks, misery, car bombs. It's spectacular. You're going to love it. The computers have taken the horror of the human experience in this dystopian world and created a circus out of it, and they're charging admission. It's a statement on how we've all become desensitized by the insane stuff we hear happening all over the world. 
We see it as breaking news and just a moment ago and all of that through our TV sets. And in the dystopian world of Carnival 9, it's now become an ugly circus, a tourist attraction. Musically, what's interesting about the entire Carnival 9 suite is the counterpoint. All throughout the suite, you hear one theme ending while another one begins. The human narrator was the first theme, then we start hearing this circus theme, which blends us right into part two of the first impression. This was where you flip the record, but they cut part one off at an opportune time, so the beginning of part two still sounds like a complete thought. Part two of the first impression is the most famous bit of Carnival 9 and one of Emerson, Lake & Palmer's biggest commercial hits. I love this whole, this whole Carnival 9 suite. I'll, I'll, I just love it. But I will tell you that they had, that the, that's my favoriteest, favoriteest part is that is the, the separation from the part, part one, one and two. One, two of the first impression which is the what everybody knows is welcome back my friends that is that is uh that's on my forever playlist you know that song is one of those songs that i can listen to over and over welcome back my friends to the show that never ends we're so glad you could attend come inside come inside there behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Rest assured, you'll get your money's worth. With this show, it happened out at the Oxy Show. It's a dynamo. You gotta see the show. It's rock and roll. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends has become a progressive rock mantra. It's the title or partial title of multiple books I've read on the topic, not just Emerson, Lake and Palmer, but progressive rock in general. It's just one of those mega famous genre defining lyrics that any progressive rock fan knows well. Our carnival barker yells that out and the rest of this song gives us the picture of this grotesque, colorful show that the robots and computers are lining up to see. Humans are the freak show.
First Impression Part 2 is such a tight, beautifully constructed piece of music. Keith Emerson says he feels like the tempo slows down just a bit at one point, which I have never really noticed, but I'm sure when you're that close to it, you notice stuff like that. Again, Carl Palmer recorded this entire thing without a click track to work from, and a drummer without a click track is only human. Ironic, isn't it? Carnival 9's second impression is a series of abstracts that are meant to produce a disorienting feeling. Keith Emerson says he was partially inspired by jazz pianist Chick Corea when he wrote this beginning part. About a minute 30 into the second impression, it sounds like you're pulling a series of rubber bands too tight or something. Then about halfway through the song, Emerson begins playing this gorgeous, dark piano part with the other band members adding in creepy sounds for effect. Like two characters are in a dark alleyway making some kind of weird deal or something. It tells a story without any words, and is definitely a precursor to the fact that Keith Emerson would go on to create film scores. 
When he recorded this song, Emerson had his mini Moog on top of the piano, which is what he used to create the marimba sound and the steel drums. The mini Moog was super versatile, still is for many musicians. But Emerson was playing this all at the same time, no overdubs whatsoever. It's like he had four arms. only three people you know sometimes you hear you know these groups and you know, they only have four or five people but you know that they've got more going on in the studio and stuff I mean there's just more going on and, and especially with brain salad surgery they wanted to be able to do this live so you're not hearing anything that they really can't reproduce couldn't have reproduced and didn't reproduce you know live Which brings us to the final movement of Carnival 9, the third impression. This is where stuff starts to really go downhill. It's interesting listening to this and remembering back to the first track on Brain Salad Surgery, Jerusalem. A triumphant, pretty hymn started us out, and now all hell is about to break loose. The evolution this whole album takes us through is unbelievable, though it does begin and end with a ton of bravado. And very appropriately, the third impression deals mostly with the evolution of human creativity, beginning all the way back to the Stone Age. Our first narrator, the human, is back to fight for his identity, his creativity. He needs to gain contact again with what he's created.
they're still now, they're still talking about robots in a, in a bad way. But I can remember in the 70s, they were, they were starting to look at computers in a bad light. There were lots of movies about computers taking over. And, mm -hmm. and, and there's always been that, that fear that man is going to be taken over by a computer. And of course, here's, you know, third impression. It's, it's, it's fulfilling <laughs> it its happens. prophecy. That's right. <laughs> it happened. That's right. Yeah, it's very 2001 A Space Odyssey. Very much. song, the human and Carnival 9, the computer, have a conversation. But Karn gets the last word, leaving up in the air who or what has finally succeeded. This, as far as I could tell, was the only credit for Keith Emerson vocal of any Emerson Lake and Palmer song or album. This He got credit on, on the third part. Oh, he's the computer voice? He is the computer voice. Oh. And he, so they gave him a vocal credit, and he never did any other vocals, which I I find it hard to believe, but he was too busy playing. He didn't sing. I don't know. Did the guy ever have, did he have a good vocal voice? Could he sing? I mean. I mean, we never heard Carl Palmer sing. Maybe, maybe they can, maybe play, they can't. I don't know. I think if you play the piano for that long, you have to be able to carry a tune, don't you think? I would think so. I would think so, because you could eventually tune yourself, but... He's going pretty fast, and he's making some strange noises out of those <laughs> keyboards, so I don't know. Maybe <laughs> he can't true. do that. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> song, that's the Moog going crazy, sped up by Emerson to sound like a computer out of control.
Let's take a look at the album artwork for Brain Salad Surgery, which was created by Swiss surrealist artist H.R. Geiger. His artwork, inspired by his own nightmares, uses a mix of biological and technical imagery to convey overt scenes of sex and death. Google his work and see what I mean. It's incredibly scary stuff. You actually may be familiar with his work already if you've seen the 1979 film Alien. Geiger's artwork was Dan O'Bannon's inspiration to write the film, and Geiger himself designed all the alien aspects for the movie, including the main alien, the face hugger, and the small chest-bursting alien. He would go on to win an Oscar for Best Visual Effects at the 1980 Academy Awards. When Geiger was introduced to Emerson Lake and Palmer in 1973, he was already a huge fan of the band. When they told him they'd like him to create the cover for brain salad surgery, Geiger was over the moon. For the band, Geiger's work was shocking, fascinating, and foreboding, all the same ways they like to think about their own music. They wanted the cover of Brain Salad Surgery to reflect that too. Geiger's first crack at the design was extremely sexual, like can't put it on the shelves level sexual. So he was asked by the recording company to tone it down. Nevertheless, the result is something truly scary, mechanical, and still pretty obviously phallic. It's an amazing cover. If you just sit and look at it, it looks very scary. It is scary. Uh, and that was part of the that was part of the changes because initially it was not scary so much as it was very suggestive. I mean, extremely suggestive. Not really suggesting anything at all. It's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let that to the listener's imagination. Uh, but it's a very cool cover. The back is beautiful too. Yes. It's the middle. It's the middle of the full of this foldout, but it's um, the back of the vinyl that I have. And it, I mean, the woman's, it's still a little bit scary. It is a lot scary. On the inside. Because yeah. the woman is so beautiful, but her hair looks like snakes or something. Yeah. Well, among other things. Yeah. Well. <laughs> there are many ideas about the title, Brain Salad Surgery, which you don't need to have that dirty of a mind to believe it might have been a sexual reference just like the cover. But it's widely believed that the title came from the 1973 song, Right Place, Wrong Time, by New Orleans-based singer-songwriter Dr. John. Rest in peace. My dad mentioned that there were also a couple songs that were written for brain salad surgery that didn't make it onto the album. One of the songs was, and I'll show you this here, one of the songs, let me get the whole title in here. When the apple blossoms bloom in the windmills of your mind, I'll be your valentine. That's the title of the song? That is the title of the song, and that is actually <laughs> oh, the is that flip the B side, side? The B side to, oh, the, to the Jerusalem release. Nice. And I've listened to that. Uh, Spotify has it. I, and it's, it's, I, I kind of like it. It starts out a lot of percussion. And here's something else that I have. I was going to show you this. This is really hard to find. This is 
another there were another song that was that was not oddly enough was not released was brain salad surgery the title song this is a a floppy a flexible 40 or 33 that was given away free it was included with the new musical express a newspaper in england and it was to promote brain salad surgery and it came out just like this and here is the the little what <laughs> for those of you at home that are not on our video feed this is a <laughs> this is a little miniature well it's like a 45 size it's got a it's got a 33 spindle but it's very flexible vinyl almost uh it's like paper. roll it up it is almost paper it's so thin yeah now i have not played that yet so that's something that, that we but that How does has not get caught on like the needle or well, something. Well, it does. It does. These are these are not these are not. Well, look at it. Look uh, at the edges of it. Yeah, too. these are not high fidelity type <laughs> things. But but I thought it was interesting that it came out in the sleeve that is just like the album. It's just a miniature forty five of the uh, of, of the album. They used to have giveaways in other magazines. Uh, I can remember my 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 mother getting magazines and having those like the tear out ads. And you could actually, they had a little, uh, they had the, the binder was connected to the record. And then there was, it was uh, perforated here. And you could actually tear out a record and listen to it. And it was, I don't know, it was probably promoting to buy a records. Maybe maybe like the uh, the greatest hits or something. But it would, it would these type of things would appear in Vogue or, or any other so magazine. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like the perfume samples a little yes, bit where it's yes. just enough for you to use it like one time and well then yeah i'm sure like i'm sure that this whatever. couldn't be played very much and it's only one-sided too it's, oh it's, yeah uh that is crazy i've never seen anything like that yeah i i can remember having things i i don't remember that it was of anything of value but it was usually a promotional thing and they were stamped out uh and dating myself once more you you, you probably have never seen a cereal box that had a record stamped out on the back of it. No, I definitely I used, I used to collect those. They would have like the Archies and, and uh, other pop groups that you could get a stamped uh, 45 or it had a 33 spindle and they were really put in there, but but you'd cut it out of the back of the cereal box and it'd be square, and it'd be round grooves, but square out of the box. And then you could play a, a song. And of course the quality was really poor, but once again, it was meant to expose and, and promote this group or, or whatever they were doing. After embarking on their colossal brain salad surgery tour, right at the height of progressive rock and especially of their fame personally, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer went on hiatus. They kept a pretty low profile between 75 and 76, returning in 1977 with Works 1, which, as my dad mentioned earlier, was formatted as a double album with Side 1 all Emerson written songs, Side 2 were all Lake songs, Side 3 was all of Palmer songs, and Side 4 were just two songs by all three of them. It was the first pretty obvious clue that they were all ready to go their separate ways.
Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were beginning to realize that each other's presence was becoming more of a constraint than the successful partnership with which they'd begun in 1970. ELP's works, too, followed shortly thereafter in 1977, but by then, it was too late. Progressive rock was on the way out, and along with it, the conceptual albums, extended suites, and classical inspiration that had captured millions just a few short years earlier. Because in the time ELP had been on hiatus, something else was brewing underground, a genre that would be the antithesis of progressive rock and everything it stood for. Punk rock and its new set of fans saw progressive rock as old, too drawn out, out of touch, and unconcerned with politics or anything of real social concern. Punk songs were short, punchy, and gave people a reason to get angry and to rebel. Progressive rock just seemed like a bunch of snobby Beethoven fans in Gandalf robes compared to the hard-edged punk scene. We can't forget about disco, either another genre that had emerged in the mid to late 70s as progressive rock fans were looking for something new to listen to. In 1977, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer would go on their last major tour as a band, the Works Tour. It was still just as grand and spectacular as their live shows ever were, but it was that same boldness that signaled the beginning of the end for ELP. In Forrester Hansen and Askew's book on Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, they note that as the times were changing so rapidly, had ELP played it safer with the live shows, had they not toured with semi after semi and taken such a massive show on the road, they could have actually made some money on this tour. Instead, they struggled. Emerson was going down a path of depression and drug use. The band had hired a huge orchestra to tour with them, a cost it would turn out that they could not afford, and more and more reasons not to stay together kept surfacing. By the late 70s, corporate sponsorship had begun taking all the risk out of large-scale tours for bands like U2 and the Rolling Stones. They could finish a world tour of modest success and still ring up millions of dollars. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer blazed the trail for the success that major stadium tours still enjoy today, but they'd pay a heavy price for it. By the end of 1978, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's relationship had almost fully deteriorated, and they were lost on what to do next. They had made a career making music that was now the opposite of what people wanted to listen to. There was a lot of uncertainty within an ELP, and not just them, but the prog genre as a whole. Some adapted and made their songs shorter and less complicated. Some bands laid low to wait it out, only to come out on the other side in the 80s, and that was rough for everyone. Some disbanded completely. I'm sure if they had their say in the matter, ELP probably would have gone back into exile for another few years or disbanded permanently. It's what I wish they would have done at this point. But Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were contractually obligated by Atlantic to make one more album. And no surprise, Atlantic wanted something commercial to compete with punk and disco. Enter 1978's Love Beach. It's just painfully bad. ELP had recorded Love Beach in Nassau, Bahamas, and once Lake and Palmer finished their parts, they bailed, and Emerson basically produced and put the whole thing together. 
The band didn't go on tour to support Love Beach, and by 1979, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer disbanded. The band would partially reform in the 80s as Emerson, Lake, and Powell, with English drummer Cozy Powell in Palmer's place. When Palmer returned to the band, Robert Berry then replaced Greg Lake, forming the band Three. But otherwise, the original members of ELP had other stuff going on. Keith Emerson would go on to create film scores, including for the 1980 film Inferno and the 1981 Sylvester Stallone film Nighthawks. Carl Palmer went on to co-found the band Asia, another progressive rock supergroup that featured Palmer, Steve Howe from Yes, keyboardist Jeff Downs, and John Wetton, who had done vocals and bass in the new lineup of King Crimson in 1972. Asia formed in 1981 and still tours today. One thing led to another, we were young, and we would scream together songs unsung. In 1981, Greg Lake released two solo records, neither of which were commercial successes. There's no reason for you to love me after all of the heartaches we've been through. But I love you, I just can't help it. You're so beautiful, what else can I do? You say you didn't make me love you, and you tell me that you're not to blame, but it still hurts me the same. Baby, love is not a game Cause it hurts In 1991, Keith Emerson was approached by former Atlantic employee Phil Carson, who was now the head of a new label, Victory Records. Carson told Emerson he wanted him to compose a new film score. Emerson, believing Greg Lake and Carl Palmer would be great cohorts on the music, called them up. Palmer was in the midst of recording a new album with Asia, but dropped everything at the chance. The three of them got back together to rehearse, and it was like old times again. ELP released Black Moon in 1992 and In the Hot Seat in 1994. If you're looking to get an idea of what the band sounded like live, ELP put out some great live albums besides pictures at an exhibition, including Welcome Back My Friends in 1974. While they released only nine studio albums, ELP released 24 live albums over the course of their career. The band regrouped again to tour in 2010, not knowing it would be their last time. Keith Emerson and Greg Lake died recently, both in 2016, an immensely sad year for progressive rock fans. Lake died of cancer in December 2016. 
His manager announced the news, describing his battle as, quote, long and stubborn. Keith Emerson struggled with depression and anxiety since the 1970s, and alcohol and drug use off and on. In his late 60s, he began experiencing nerve damage in his hands that made it difficult to move his hands and play the piano. The instrument he played hanging upside down, suspended in air, the one he lived and breathed his entire life. He couldn't do it the same anymore. On March 11, 2016, when he was 71 years old, Emerson was found in his Santa Monica home with one self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Greg Lake told Britain's Express newspaper that his friend had been battling depression since the making of works and would go on to live a lonely existence of someone who is deeply troubled. It makes me so sad to talk about Keith Emerson's death. He is one of my all-time favorite musicians and had such unbelievable talent. I love watching old videos of him on YouTube. The piano, the keyboard, the synthesizer, they were all just an extension of him. Not only did he master every single instrument he touched, but then he consistently sought out new ways to explore and reinvent it. He and Greg Lake are both missed so much. The only remaining member of ELP, Carl Palmer, formed ELP Legacy, a tribute to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and just finished touring with members of Asia, Yes, and the Moody Blues on the Royal Affair tour last year. Despite the fact that the genre nearly died, progressive rock has left a lasting impression on rock music. I feel like the seeds of prog were sown deep enough into the ground that you still see it come alive today. Progressive metal is a fantastic genre that surfaced in the later 1980s, which then gave rise to math rock, avant-garde metal, and new progressive like the Mars Volta. Other progressive bands like Ween, The Flaming Lips, Primus, The Claypool Lennon Delirium, and so many other modern artists continue to carry the inspiration and excitement of progressive rock through into new eras. Here's to the present and future keyboardists, rock organists, and Moog Masters undoubtedly inspired by Keith Emerson, the rock vocalists who list Greg Lake at the top of their influences, and progressive drummers challenging the reality of time and space like Carl Palmer. ELP will always be here. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year! There is a lot of exciting stuff in store this year on Radio Gaga, and I am so glad to have you all here. As always, leave me a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode, and send the link to this podcast to any and all fellow music fans in your life. So this is the new year. I don't feel any different. Next week, we're covering the 2003 album by Death Cab for Cutie, Transatlanticism. We are officially doubling up for the first time, covering an artist that we've already covered before. Well, kind of. We've already covered the lead singer. As you may know, Death Cab for Cutie frontman Ben Gibbard was also a founding member of the Postal Service. So listen to that episode if you haven't already. 
Enjoy your week, and I'll see you back here next Tuesday for Transatlanticism. I'm